pick back up here in Psalm 14. And I think it's very important here, even for just where we are uh, tonight, just listening to some of the prayer requests and, and listening to just how our lives are, watching the news for more than a second. I believe that this psalm certainly has an incredible amount of information and application for us. And so I want to read for us the psalm. It's just these seven verses, and then we'll just break it down into two little sections here of uh, the, the depraved um, people and then the defended people. The depraved people are going to be seeing that the lost world in the first three verses and the last four verses are going to be showing the Lord's defense of His people. And uh, that should be a great help to us tonight and as well as a great hope to know that God defends and protects and provides for His people. But let's look here. First of all, verse number 1 says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that didn't understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Here I want us to look here at the first three verses to begin looking at man's depravity. He begins this psalm here and by saying, The fool hath said, In his heart there is no God. And then he goes on in the rest of verses 1, 2, and 3 to give this long list of things that uh, that describe the sinful man. Now we've got many words that we can use to describe what the lost world looks like, acts like, but I believe that he sums it up perhaps the best. But perhaps the best summation or the best summary of what it means to be lost, it's really found in that word or that phrase or even that title given, the fool. This is here, to understand the fool here, uh, one commentator puts it, the fool is neither ignorant nor an atheist. As we would think, right? When we say, you're acting foolish, we would say you're acting ignorant or perhaps uh, you're not thinking through this, right? You're, you're acting like a fool, maybe even crazy, right? But here it has, it has a deeper meaning. The word fool is synonymous with wicked. It reflects the wisdom, tradition, where the fool aggressively and intentionally flouts independence from God and His commandments. So the fool is not one who is dumb or ignorant or not intelligent or unable to uh, read books or learn about God, but rather the fool is one who knows that there is God and yet rejects God. The fool is the one who in this life lives a wicked life. And I want you to know that there are plenty of people who would dress the part, look the part of a Christian, and yet inside are still wicked. Sadly, there are plenty of fools in churches. There's plenty of fools in pulpits. There's plenty of fools who are authors. There's plenty of fools everywhere. The fool is not the ignorant one, but the one who ignores, rather, who God is. He's not ignorant in his mind, but he's ignoring God in his heart. He's ignorant, if you will, in the sense that he ignores the God that he should know. He ignores the God that he was designed to serve. He says in his heart, there is no God. But here, let's look even more so. The fool here who does wickedly, right? It is a foolish thing to do wickedness, is it not? It is a foolish thing to sin. You ever thought about the stupidity of sin? 
Right? There's not a day goes by that you and I still yet in our flesh don't sin at some point. We have wrong thoughts, wrong motives, wrong actions, or wrong reactions, right? What do we find? Well, sin is lawlessness or it's wickedness. It is a wicked thing to sin against the Holy God. But when we think, though, is it not a foolish thing? You see, every sin is foolish in both meanings of the word fool as we would know it. One, it's foolish to sin against God because why in the world would you sin or do wrong against or to the one who loves you so? Why in the world would we do that which God has said, don't do it? It would be like this. If you run up the road, right, and it says 35 miles an hour and you're doing 60. That's a good little bit, aren't you? Right? You're scooting along pretty good. And you get pulled over and you just say, well, I just, I just ignore the signs. I, just, you know, I don't really believe in the speed limits. Right? That's a foolish thing, isn't it? Right? Very foolish thing. How could you do such and not expect to get pulled over and shoot, you're going 60 and 35. You might get tased over that. I don't know. Uh, but, but you think about this. It'd be a foolish thing to do that, wouldn't it? Only a fool would do that, we would say. You read about that in, in the newspaper. In fact, I think it was, uh, saw an article, I think on Facebook, which you know you can believe everything if you see on Facebook. But I think it said there was two guys in Tazewell County who tried to uh, cook something in their apartment using a flamethrower. And it caught the apartment on fire. What would we call that? Foolish, wouldn't we? Why? Because they're ignoring the purpose of that stove and a pan, and they're ignoring what a flamethrower is used for. It's not used for cooking, isn't it, right? You're not going to fix a hot pocket or a ham sandwich that way. Now, the fool is much more, though. He says the fool who is, is the wicked one, the one who is wicked, the one who thinks foolishly, the one who acts foolishly. In the Psalms and in Proverbs, what we find is when we see wisdom or the wise person, we find that they're a blessed person. But they're a faithful person. They're an obedient person. They, they're someone who knows God's law and submits to God's law. But then we find that the fool or the wicked one or the unblessed person is one who sees God's law, hears the cry of righteousness or the cry of wisdom, and ignores it. Now, more so, let's look. The fool hath said in his heart. Now, I believe that's key. Long before there are wicked acts done, Outwardly, the wicked act has already happened inwardly. We have to remember this. Let's take a few certain sins, for example, if we would. How about stealing? Before you steal a car, you've already stole that car in your heart, haven't you? You've already saw yourself getting in it. You've uh, seen yourself turning the key and hearing that exhaust. and, and you've, you've already seen how cool you're going to look in that new a car that you're stealing, right? You've already thought about your escape plan and your, your route out of town. You've already thought about that in your heart. Isn't that sin? Sure it is. I hope you're not sitting around thinking about stealing cars tonight. It is sin. That sin of stealing has already happened here before it happens out, before they get in the car. How about adultery? Jesus says that if you lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. He says, you've already sinned. Long before we get into an outward sin, there's the sin that is in the inner man. There's the sin that is taking place in the heart. The heart, and as well as with the bowels, uh, for the Jewish people, as they wrote and discussed their inner man, this is their seat of their thought, their emotions, their will. This is really who they are. 
they thought with their heart and they felt with their, their bowels and things. Right? They got a gut feeling, if you will. So this is talking about the inward. He's saying, inwardly, the fool says this. Inwardly, the wicked one says this. He says, there is no God. But this is important here. Sorensen writes this. He says, an alternate sense is also of interest. Notice that the words, there is, are in italics. That means that they are not in the Hebrew text, but were inserted by the translators, hopefully to add understanding. That's the idea, by the way. Let me pause there for a moment. When you see italics in, in the Scripture, it's not that they were necessarily there in the Hebrew or the Greek text, but rather it's adding it that in the context for the better understanding. All right? So we see here, the wicked one has said, no God, for you and I in the English, it doesn't read quite as well, does it? But when we see... The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Kind of brings it a little bit better here. But I want us to look here. Sorensen writes, he says, The Hebrew text simply says, The fool has said in his heart, no God. The idea, therefore, may be of simply saying no to God in rebellion and disobedience. You think of such. It is not just that the fool or the wicked one says that there is no God, but it's deeper than that. A foolish or maybe an ignorant person might say that there is no God, right? That would be ignorance, wouldn't it? Right? They often say ignorance is bliss. Now, there's, deep, there's, a, there's a deeper thing here, though. It's not just that he's saying there is no God, but he's saying in his heart, no God. That's much more defiant than there is no God, isn't it? He's flat saying no God, meaning no God in existence, no God in authority, no God to answer to, no God will I serve. What is he really saying? The fool who says no God in his heart is saying that there is a God, but that he himself is his own God. There was uh, an author who put out, and I don't have it tonight, I wish I would have brought it. There was a poem called uh, Captain of My Soul. And in that poem, the author of it is talking about how they need nobody and nothing else in this world. They are the captain of their own soul they're the captain of their own life. They make their own decisions. They live their life as they please, and they live their life for themselves. But then there was a Christian author who later down the road wrote sort of a rebuttal poem that went in the exact same way in which the other poem did, but this time it was showing that Christ is the captain of our soul, meaning that it is He who owns us. It is He who we serve. It is He who we live for. It is one of submission, one of trusting, one of faith. Now when we look here and we read, the fool has said, no God. Well, boy, that is one, a foolish thing, but it's more so than just a foolish or ignorant thing. It is a wicked thing to say no to God. Think about this, though. How many times have we told God no? Probably more than we'd like to think. We can think about some folks in the Bible who told God no. They might not have looked at him directly and said no, but they didn't know the ways. Think about old Jonah. God says, why don't you go to Nineveh? And Jonah books a one-way ticket for the opposite direction, right? He goes a-running. And what happens? What happens in telling God no? God's still going to have His way. God has a way of getting us to the depth of the belly of a whale, to the depth of the bottom of an ocean, to get us to where we need to be. Sometimes we take the hard road because we tell the Lord no, because it's a wicked and a foolish thing to tell God no. You ever find that when you tell God yes, one, you're exercising faith and trust in Him, but two, in that obedience, what do you find? You find a blessing. In obedience, you find that the Lord is pleased. 
It is a foolish thing to deny God's existence, first of all, but it's even more of a foolish or ignorant or wicked thing to deny or to disobey His rule and authority over our life. Turn back to uh, Psalm chapter 2 for just a moment. Psalm 2. Here we see an example of someone who would say, not just there is no God, but even more so what the psalmist here in Psalm 14 is saying. Not just there is no God, but even more so, no God. The fool says, no God. It says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. It says, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Think about this. It is the wicked one who would mock the Lord. It is a wicked one who would say and rage against the Lord and imagine a vain thing and set themselves against the Lord. Set themselves against Christ. When we talk about fools, fools are not just those who we would say are, are, are atheists or agnostics. The foolish one is the one who lives worldly and carnally. And that includes believers as well. They're acting very foolish in doing so. There are many fools and there are wise men in this world. Wisdom is hard to come by. Wisdom is well earned. Wisdom takes time, but wisdom takes much more than time to be wise. Wisdom takes obedience to the Lord and His truth to gain real wisdom. That's where real wisdom is. Real wisdom, in the beginning of it, is the fear of the Lord. It is a submission to Him. And so, for the one who says, no God, Well, there is no fear of Him. And that's a fearful thing, isn't it? It is a fearful thing for that person's soul who would say no God and would live their life any way that they choose. Disobedience and unbelief ultimately bring destruction. You see, the fool's heart is his inner man. As we've talked about, his his soul, his spirit, the way he thinks, the way he feels, the way he responds, and the way he relates to God. And the greatest need of his inner man becomes his greatest neglect. The greatest thing that the fool needs is to not say no God, but rather to say yes God. Not just that God exists, but yes to God in all things and for all things. A dependence, a trust, a faith, and instead he neglects such. Hold your place there and turn over to Matthew chapter 7 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, Jesus is preaching here the Sermon on the Mount, and He gives an illustration to really bring home what this looks like, the difference between the fool and the wise man. The fool here, that we're talking about, is one who goes a broad way. He goes the way of the world. He goes the way of his flesh. He goes the way of himself. Matthew 7, verse 13 says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. We know that the lost world goes the broad way and says no God. But sadly, there's many of professing believers who say no to the Lord. It must never be so with us, brethren. But here, as we move forward a little bit and we see in this psalm, he says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Or the fool has said in his heart no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. This is pretty rough, isn't it? 
They're corrupt, he starts off. Right? This is the, the folly of their life. They are corrupt and have abominable works. Is the idea of corruption and abominable works is that they're inward man and outward man from the inside out. They are destructive to themselves and the world around them. The lost world does not help the world like they think they do. The lost world can't really help because the lost world is concerned with themselves. They are the ones that say no to God but yes to themselves as God. They are the ones that make idols of themselves in their heart and then commit their lives to immorality, which is an overflow of an idolatrous life. But they are destructive is the sense of corrupt and and abominable works. They go down a destructive way. And as we just read over in Matthew, what does Jesus say? They're going a broad way. It's an easy way. And many are going to go down it. But it's the way that is destruction. It causes destruction, but it leads ultimately to destruction. He moves on and says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And this is interesting. This is the idea of the Lord looks down, searching about, is there anyone here that does good? Is there anyone here that is good? Is there anyone that understands and seeks? It reminds me much of the time of Noah. Noah had 120 years to build an ark and to preach the word faithfully. And that's what he did. And during that time, no one else, save the ones of his own household, eight total, including himself, go into the ark. No one else. And the world had a whole lot more people than what we often give credit for. The issue here is that much like in the days of Noah, so shall it be, Jesus says, in the end days. The Lord looks down and, and look around us. There's very few that are following the Lord, is it? You talk to other believers and other churches and things and Attendance is down everywhere, it seems. Commitment is down everywhere. People, don't, um, people aren't what they used to be. The world has so changed. The people have so much changed. We're more like the world than we are like the Word and living like the Word, like we're supposed to. We've gone the way of destruction. We've gone the way of folly. We've gone the way of the fool. And I wonder sometimes if the Lord looks down from heaven and sees us, well, this should bring us some joy knowing that the Lord sees our works and knows our works. He knows our hearts. But at the same time, it should bring us a holy fear knowing that God sees how we live. God sees what we think. God knows our hearts. God knows the way and the direction of our churches, of our homes, of our families, of our nation. He says they are all gone aside. The Lord looks, He sees. They're all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. God sees them. Though they ignore God's existence and rule, yet He sees them in their folly. We saw that over in Psalm 2, but we as well see it in Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 3 for a few minutes. Romans chapter 1 tells us this in verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The idea of holding the truth in a righteous, it is this sort of suppression. It is this idea of like, you ever, when you were a kid, you ever go out with cousins or friends and you're at the lake and you play that game, and I don't know what you call it, but it's where you dunk each other and hold each other under until the other one's screaming and bubbles coming up. I don't know what you call it, but, but that's just the game that, <laughs> maybe it's the game that just the guys play, I don't know, but the, 
boys roughhousing. Like, you're holding them under, right? And then bubbles, and come, you let them come up. You get in trouble, that whole thing. It's the idea of holding something under that you know is there. They know God is there. They know the existence of God. They know the authority of God. They know the might of God. They know in their conscience the law of God. And what do they do with all their might? They push down and out of the way because they don't want to answer to God. That's a foolish and a wicked mindset. It's a foolish and a wicked thing. God still sees them, though they choose not to see God. We must understand that that is their choice. How could you look at the creative order of this world and not see the Lord's hand? How could you not hear your own heartbeat and not know, and not believe rather, that God is the one who designed and created you? How could you not see these things? Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. How about this? Psalm 11 verse 4 tells us, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. You know, you hear the song about Santa Claus. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake, right? You hear that sung by all the kids at Christmas time and things. You can take that or leave it, whatever. It's your choice. But at the end of the day, there is a God in heaven who sits upon His throne and He truly does not just see your outward good and your outward bad, but He sees your innermost thoughts. He sees your wicked motives. He knows us from the inside out better than we do. He sees us at all times, in all places. Kidner writes, The words remind us of God descending from heavens to observe the folly of those building the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11.5, or looking down upon the wickedness of the race prior to His judgment by the flood. He's looking around and seeing, is there any good? Is there any seeking? Is there any understanding? It is a sobering thought to know God, but as well to ponder the eyes of the Lord. To sit and think for just a moment. To meditate on the thought that God sees me. That's a big thought, isn't it? To think that God sees me. Not just me just walking around. But God sees my heart. He sees my mind. He sees my motives. He knows why you came to church tonight. God knows why I came tonight. The Lord knows that should sober us up a little bit when we think about the Lord. It should sober us up a little bit with how we treat each other, how we go about church, how we go about being husbands and fathers and, and, and everything that we are. It should change everything, knowing that God knows us and sees us. But yet it should also bring us joy as we obey Him and seek to obey Him. And here's what He tells us. That there's none that understand, there's none that seek. They've all gone out of the way. Here in Romans, flip over just a page in Romans chapter 3. That whole long list is very much a quotation, or rather Romans here is very much a lot of quotation from Psalm 14. The Apostle Paul is drawing off of what the psalmist said in Psalm 14, and here's what he says. Chapter 1 of Romans is basically this. Anyone that is not a Jew, or the Gentiles rather, they're guilty, right? Then in chapter 2 he says, if you're not a Gentile and you're a Jew, you're just as guilty. He says, you're guilty. And then in chapter 3, he says, are you better off being a Jew or a Gentile? He says, no, because all are guilty is what he gets to. Here's what he says. He says, what then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. So, if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are under sin. Plain and simple. 
Now, look here. Here's what else he says. As it is written. If you have a reference Bible, it probably says like it has in mind, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. Why? Because this is what he's going to go quote. He says, there is none righteous. No, not one. Let's break this down. You ready? Pop quiz tonight. There is none righteous. No, not one. How many righteous are there? None. How about one? Not even one. Not even one. How about this? He says, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Let me ask you this. How many understand? None. Alright, let me ask you this. You guys are doing good. How many seek after God? He says, none. It's plain as day. He says, they are all gone out of the way. How many have gone out of the way? All of them. Who's the all of them? You and I without Christ. You and I before trusting in Jesus. We were the ones who had gone out of the way. We were the ones who did not seek. Now, there are plenty of people in church who are seeking church and seeking religion, but they're not seeking the Lord. Religion doesn't seek the Lord, by the way. Religion seeks this inner peace that only God can fill, but it does so in a way that man's hands are involved. And if your hands are involved, it's not salvation. can't be. The only thing that you provide for your salvation is, is the sin that makes it necessary to be saved. It's all of God's grace. Look at what else he says about this. He says, There is none that doeth, or excuse me, back up. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not once. One, one more time. How many do good? None. How about one? Not even one. The sweetest person that you know in your life. If they don't know Jesus, they're not as sweet as you think they are. Sadly, there's a lot of people who have done a lot of nice things, but nice won't get you to heaven. Only repentance and faith will. Only repentance and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. He goes on more about this fool, if you will, or about the lost, or about all people who are without Christ. Here's how guilty they are. Here's what their life looks like. He says... Their throat is an open sepulcher. I mean this, it's an open grave. If you opened up a, a fresh grave, do you think it would be a pleasant smell? No. Matter of fact, if you remember back when Jesus shows up on the fourth day to raise Lazarus from the dead, what does the sister say? It's before four days, he's starting to stink. You don't want to roll that stone away, it's going to stink. Why? Because that's when the body starts rotting and decaying. So what is he saying? Their throat is an open sepulcher. Meaning when we open up our mouths, when someone without Christ opens up their mouths, what does it do? It stinks from the inside. It, we're like rotting graves. We're like what Jesus said of the Pharisees. We're whitewashed tombs. But even more so, do we not just have a tomb that's got a pretty door that's all nice and posh on the outside. It's rolled out the way and the stench is coming out. He says with their tongues, they've used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Boy, how small yet mighty the tongue is, isn't it? That's what James tells us. Small like a, like a horse's bridle, yet it turns us about. Like a, like a rudder to a ship. It, it's something small, but it moves the whole boat. Our tongue can be used for edifying God, glorifying God, edifying one another. But how often it's used to quickly tear down others how it's used to react in some sort of vile manner. Here's what he goes on to say about it. Whose mouth is full of cursing 
and bitterness. It's a foolish thing to curse. You got a curse? Get a, get a dictionary. Get, get a thesaurus. Build your vocabulary. Right? How about this? He says, and full of bitterness. You know, our bitterness comes out in the way that we talk sometimes. The way in which we respond. Comes out in the way that we talk to others. It comes out even the way that we, we pray at times. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace have they not known. You want to know what the world is looking for? It's peace, isn't it? What does every Miss America ever say? Looking for world peace, right? Every beauty pageant contestant, they say that if they had one wish, it'd be world peace. Everybody wants peace in their heart. But everyone looks for peace in the wrong place. You'll never find peace in an empty bottle. You'll never find peace in the things of this world. You won't find peace even in good works and religion. There are plenty of people who are plenty religious and very sincere and do all sorts of good works. And yet, and sadly, and you can read about some of this. You can read some of the last words of many famous people online. You can see many of them who are considered good people who live good moral lives, but yet without Christ. You know, when they died, they asked many questions like, was it worth it? Did, did it even actually matter? Why am I dying and I don't have peace about this? The reason why is because you can do all the good works you want and still not be at peace with God. Because it's not about our good works because we have none. It's about His good work because He's got all the good works. It's trusting in His work. He goes on and says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The reason why that fool says, no God, is because he has no fear of God. The beginning of wisdom Knowledge of fear. Knowledge of the Holy One. The reason why we see the world in such a shape as it is is because we've lost an old-timey thing. And it sounds so old-timey, but it shouldn't be. And that is the fear of the Lord. Used to be a time when everybody had this sort of, at least a mild fear of the Lord. Used to not hear about churches being vandalized. Used to not hear about... Um, you know, all these different things have to protest at churches, people stealing from churches. You just didn't hear about those things. Why? Because there used to be some sort of fear of the Lord. Not so much anymore. It's not so common. And sadly, it's not so common inside the house of God as it once was. Spurgeon writes about this at, at verse numbers 1, 2, and 3 of Psalm 14. He says, What a picture of our race is this. Save only where grace reigns. There is none that doeth good. Humanity fallen and debased is a desert without an oasis, a night without a star, a dunghill without a jewel, a hell without a bottom. What a way to put it. Humanity at its best without Christ is wicked. Humanity at its best is vile and foolish. But look at this. Verses 4-7. through seven. Here's our hope, though, church. This is our God who is the, the defender of the righteous. He says, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? I love how the Lord says such. He asks the question, are, are the workers of iniquity, do they have any knowledge at all? Because if they had any knowledge, they wouldn't be saying no God, would they? They wouldn't be living so foolishly and so wickedly, would they? 
You ever feel when you hear about someone or know someone who doesn't know the Lord, one of my first thoughts is, if they only knew. If they only knew what they're missing. If they only knew the God who loves them and died for them and offers them forgiveness. If they only knew. Change everything. See, the fool though is become an enemy of God. He says, they're workers of iniquity. He says, who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord. Now, a couple of thoughts come to my mind when you see that who eat up the people as they eat bread. During this time, eating bread was certainly like a main course, right? It is, a, it is a, certainly a, a staple. Continuously eating different breads that they had. They used bread to, to dip into things. They used bread to just eat. Um, I don't think they had any, you know, uh, whole wheats and things that they were using for sandwiches like we do today. They certainly weren't having no ham sandwiches for, for the Jews at this time. But bread was a staple. The way in which they eat bread it is this constantly. Like it for you and I to eat a piece of bread, it's nothing, right? You can grab a, a slice of bread and it's nothing. It's just a piece of bread, right? But the reason why the restaurants give you bread at the beginning, why? It'll fill you up. But yet with the wicked one, the eating up, he says, the eating up, they eat up my people. It's like they're devouring God's people. They're destroying and, and, and seeking to destroy all those who are righteous and live righteously. He says, they eat them as the bread and they call not upon the Lord. They are against God. And they're against God's people. They express no interest in God, His law, or what is right. And in all their fierceness, they will only find folly against going against God. He says, they were in great fear. They were they in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. The idea here that God is in the generation of the righteous is that God is with those who are righteous. Who are those that are righteous? Those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He is amongst us. His presence is enough. His presence in our life should be enough to keep us pressing on. His presence should be all that we need to live daily. It is the living water that we need. It is the bread of life that we need to fill us and to sustain us. Here, as we look, he says, Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is His refuge. God defends His people. Though the foolish and the wicked go against God and go against God's people, God defends them. Sorensen writes, Though Herods and Nimrods may persecute, God in His due season brings them face to face with His protective care of His people. These learn the hard way to fear God. The word righteous is used here as a generic synonym for God's people. It also has the more specific sense of those who order their lives in righteousness. God is in their midst and so preserves them and protects them. The Lord is their refuge. God is in their midst. God is present amongst this generation of righteous. God provides, protects His own. And one day He'll have final victory. What we find is that we, we see this, that the Lord is our refuge. He is one that we can hide behind. He's one that we can cling to. He's one that protects us from the enemy that comes against us. He's one that is sure 
and stable. He is one that provides for us as well to go on the offensive in the world. He is the present, very much here with us. He is the powerful, providing protector. That's who He is. He provides for us. He protects us. And He does so by the power of His presence. To know that God is with us, we can rest assured like the Bible tells us, if God be for us, who can be against us? The Lord is for His people. You can rest assured tonight that no matter what you're facing in your mind, physically, any ailments, any wicked people that are coming against you, any problems in life, to know that if you are covered by Christ's blood, if you are living in obedience to the Lord, that God is for you and is a refuge for you during this. Do not run from your refuge, but rather run to your refuge. God will provide the victory. God will provide your sustenance. God will protect you. Though all the world comes crashing in, the world might crash down upon our refuge and our refuge will still hold fast. And Here's what he says in verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of His people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Though the heathen rage, though the foolish one says no God and goes against God, goes against God's people, God will have full and final victory one day. And here this anticipates and longs for the coming of the Savior to come out of Israel. And the Lord Jesus did. He's come out, but He's coming back again. And one day He will save His people. And one day Israel shall be born again in a day when they shall behold the One whom they have pierced at His second coming when He comes to set up His kingdom on this earth. The author anticipates and longs for the coming of the Savior, but as well as that final victory found at Jesus' second coming. So the Old Testament, they're only able to look forward to a coming of the Messiah, but you and I look back and see He's come once and He's coming again. And when He comes again, there will be a full and final victory for His people once and for all. One day, that final full victory shall bring about an ultimate redemption for God's people. And it says, they shall rejoice, shall be glad. If there's anything that you and I can begin to do tonight, it's to rejoice and be glad. To know that God is our refuge. To know that God provides and protects us. We don't have to start, or we don't have to, to wait to, for heaven to start praising the Lord or to rejoice or to be glad in Him. Rather, it should be today. Today is the day that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad. How about this? To know that salvation has come, that a final victory one day when Christ returns is coming. Should that not cause us, His people, to rejoice and be glad? It absolutely should. May tonight our hearts rejoice and be glad that God is our refuge and that God gives us the victory now and one day, full and final over sin, death, hell, the grave, and over every enemy that ever comes against us or the Lord Himself. God is our refuge. May we trust and rejoice in Him. Let's pray.